Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, two FEMA-led mass vaccination sites are now up and running in California, one at the Oakland Coliseum, the other at Cal State LA, in hopes of reaching communities hard hit by the pandemic. Latinx communities have borne the brunt of COVID-19's devastation, but initial numbers suggest they make up a small share of the state's inoculated. While a big hurdle to vaccine access now is supply, Critics also point to how and where they're distributed, the challenges Latinos face accessing vaccines, and the status of the state's rollout after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. More than 50 leaders in California signed on to a letter last week urging Governor Gavin Newsom to improve and expand vaccine access to Latinx communities, stressing that they've been dramatically overrepresented in the state's COVID-19 cases and deaths and are key to the state's economy. Latino workers represent 37 percent of the state's labor force, they wrote, including an outsized share of essential workers. And to ensure California's workforce is not eviscerated during their most productive years, the administration must recalibrate vaccine distribution policies. Joining me now is Sonia Diaz, founding director of Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at the University of California, Los Angeles. Sonia Diaz, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Why did you write this letter? What are your biggest concerns about the vaccine rollout's effect on Latino communities? Well, Los Angeles and California have had an outsized share of COVID-19 infections and mortality. And this has fallen on the shoulders of Latino households for one reason in particular, they're working to keep Americans safe. And when we think about frontline communities and those most at need right now of access to a vaccine, it's those workers. And they're frankly not getting what they need because of systematic failures and policymaking that unfortunately doesn't take into account demographics and geography. So then what are the key things you're asking state administrators to do to recalibrate its vaccine distribution? They're pretty simple. Um, and in fact, Governor Gavin Newsom and his administration already heeded our ask and, and put into um, implementation one of them, which is start collecting racial and ethnic data about who's getting the vaccine and where they're getting it. The other things are a little more novel 
and they require attention to details. When we think about the elderly Californians who are at risk, we know that they're vulnerable. But data has also made clear that it's young Latinos and young people of color who are dying disproportionately. In Los Angeles County alone, between November and the present, the death rate of Latinos to COVID-19 has increased by 1,000%. And so this means that any access to vaccine around age also needs to be including workers who are not over the age of 65. So you would like to see basically that frontline communities that are under the age of 65 are included in the priority group. Absolutely, because they're dying. And this is not a Latino issue. This is an issue of California's solvency, ability to recover, and frankly, American rebuilding. And the reason being is that the people that are dying, the workers that are dying, are dying in the most productive years. These are the people that are going to continue to ensure that California is the fifth largest economy in the world. But they're also the people who lag behind other Californians with access to care both in terms of insurance coverage and actually a doctor that can speak their language or practices in their community. And that gets me to the other point, which is that we need to improve the resiliency of these communities. And we have to do that by investing in county public health agencies mm -hmm. and our community health centers that are the trusted messengers for these vulnerable Californians. In terms of changes with regard to how the state prioritizes who should be getting vaccines. You're saying that you would like a change in the guidance, but it also sounds like you have a lot of concerns with how the rollout is being handled, that even let's say that the guidance said specifically you should prioritize getting Latinos under the age of 65 vaccinated, like period, that how it's been handled has also been a problem that even under the existing guidance, more Latinos should be getting vaccinated. Absolutely. And this is a problem that really stemmed from an absence of leadership in the White House under Donald Trump and led to decentralization amongst our state and local governments. But that said, our leaders in California have been trying with limited success in getting vaccines to frontline communities. One example that I think that the rest of the state should really start replicating is having uh, a Riverside County program where you're vaccinating farm workers at their job site. That can include in food processing and meatpacking plants. That also should include employers and public health agencies. And here's another thing, just stepping back, because I know a lot of the listeners who are elderly or have elderly family members have already had trouble trying to get a vaccine appointment online. And so there needs to be a technological component and one that does not require use of high-speed broadband internet and English-only language capacity. We need to ensure that Californians can show up and get a vaccine and not jump through hurdles to try and get their family members signed up through a system that unfortunately is not user-friendly. And again, Sonia Diaz is founding director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at UCLA. I'd like to invite Barbara Fader Ostrov into the conversation, contributing writer, reporting on medicine and health policy at Cal Matters. Barbara Fader Ostrov, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So remind us what the biggest problems with the vaccine rollout have been, both the problems that the state has created and the problems that they're facing now that they can't control. Sure. So, I mean, the, the biggest problem is the lack of supply. 
That said, uh, there are still there were still problems with the rollout, and most people characterized it as pretty chaotic. Um, the state still has administered a, more than six million doses, and I was reading today that that is more than some countries at this point. It is a Herculean task. Uh, it was, as Sonia said, uh, complicated by a lack of coordination from the federal government. Things are improving, but the state still has a lot of equity issues to deal with. You know, we're hearing a lot from the governor on how equity is our North Star. And yes. he was actually at a vaccination clinic at a fruit packing plant in Coachella today. Um, it's part of his uh, tour of various vaccine sites. Um, but uh, we've seen reports of people driving in from wealthier, wider communities to grab scarce vaccine slots in lower income communities of color. And the system, as it stands right now, favors people with time, access to technology and reliable transportation. Um, but, you know, we've seen that state and local leaders are really trying to level the playing field. They have... Um, earmarked a lot of money for 150 community organizations serving disadvantaged people and hard to reach communities like farm workers who may speak indigenous languages. The state's uh, registration site, My Turn, is uh, being translated into Spanish and four other languages. And there's a hotline that will have Spanish speaking operators. So some efforts are definitely being made. Well, it's good to hear that they are turning the corner. And Sonia Diaz was suggesting that the state is listening at least to their concerns around data collection. Can you just remind us first where who is eligible right now for a vaccine? Sure. Um, any healthcare worker, uh, anyone over the age of 65, uh, 65 and older, and then three groups of essential workers teachers and childcare workers, people who work in the food industry, including grocery store workers, people who work in food processing plants and food work, you know, uh, farm workers, and then first responders like police and firefighters. And how complicated would it be to include more frontline workers under the age of 65, as Sonia Diaz would like to see, given the fact that we are seeing that the state is constantly making adjustments? For example, their priorities change to basically re-include people with disabilities and compromised immune systems. Can you talk about that? And, and how complicated is it really to, to try to make these kinds of revisions to its rollout plan? So yeah, the, the state has shown some flexibility and people with uh, certain disabilities or medical conditions will be able to, uh, will be eligible for vaccines starting on March 15th. Um, but one of the issues is we still have very short supply overall and uh, we have about 17 million people who are going to be eligible for vaccines uh, starting on March 15th. That's a lot of people. Um, and then there's the complexity of trying to prove uh, that you work in the occupation you say you do. Um, and I think what the state is trying to do instead is divert vaccine allocations to disadvantaged communities. So for example, on my turn, the state's uh, online registration site, that's going to have some vaccine allocations attached to it. And uh, they're going to be reserving some of those uh, appointments specifically for zip codes or communities that um, 
are disadvantaged, uh, low income, and may have uh, large concentrations of uh, uh, black and brown people. So, Diaz, do you think that will be enough? What more do you think is needed besides also making sure that you're zeroing in on, on zip codes, hard hit zip codes? Well, one of the most important things is whether or not Californians can survive COVID-19 and then thrive. We're talking right now about disproportionate infections and mortality rates. And we also need to be talking about morbidity and the lasting impacts of this on our households, but also our economic future. And if we wanna dive in, that means that we need to make investments to thrive. That means increasing the capacity of our local public health agencies and community health centers and civil society organizations to get to these hard to reach communities, vulnerable communities, limited English proficient communities in real time. Because although we all hope to overcome COVID-19, we know California will continue to have wildfires. We don't know what the next crises or pandemic is, but we need to beef up our infrastructure now. One of the most important examples I've been seeing time and time again, in a state with rampant wildfires over the course of the last four years, we've expected our campesinos to go and pick fruits without N95 masks. California should have had a stockpile for the very reason of our climate change disasters. And yet we find ourselves at COVID-19 where we're asking those farm workers to go pick pomegranates, go pick nuts without masks during a time of COVID-19 and also a time, unfortunately, of climate disasters. Well, we will be digging into more of your recommendations, in particular, the one where you're talking about how we need to get vaccines to public health, to to smaller local health agencies and community health centers. After the break, we'll actually be speaking with the chief operating officer of a community health center network. And so we we look forward to that. But I also want to invite our listeners right now to join the conversation with your questions about the vaccine rollout, what your experience has been trying to get a vaccine for you or a loved one, and what your thoughts are on the disparities that you're seeing, particularly how they're impacting the Latino community. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. The email address forum at kqed.org on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the challenges Latinos and other vulnerable Californians face in accessing vaccines and the status of the state's vaccine rollout with Sonia Diaz, founding director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at the University of California, Los Angeles. Barbara Fader-Ostrov, a contributing writer reporting on medicine and health policy for Cal Matters. And joining me now is Dr. Efrain Talamantes, Chief Operating Officer at AltaMed Health Services, a network of community health clinics in Los Angeles and Orange County. Dr. Talamantes, thanks so much for talking with us. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. One of the recommendations um, in Sonia Diaz's letter is fully integrating community health 
centers into the vaccine distribution process. Why has this been so difficult since I understand you are set up to vaccinate people? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, as a primary care physician and more importantly, as a Californian, you know, going into 2020, I was incredibly proud of our state and really the talk of really ensuring that every Californian had access to health care. And obviously that got um, completely, um, we got sidelined by this pandemic. And going into this pandemic, uh, serving um, an underserved community, uh, like the one we serve at Ultima here in Southern California, both LA and Orange County, over 300,000 patients, that um, the majority of them live in the top quartiles of, of um, the Center for Disease Control Social Vulnerability Index, meaning that uh, they're some of the most vulnerable Californians uh, in the state. And as, as uh, some of the other discussions have shared, um, many reasons for that. But uh, this pandemic has really shown that uh, our healthcare infrastructure is, is fractured. Um, we haven't really learned our lessons. Um, today, we have so much data that we can look at to really quantify what equity is really about. And what's been very disheartening uh, to me and to the providers that, that we serve here, the patients we serve here at Ultimate, is that we keep telling people that help is coming and, and far from it. Um, every time that we go up and, and we're in line, uh, whether it was for, for personal protective equipment, for COVID-19 testing, and now vaccines, somehow we end up at the back of the line. And... You know, it, it is um, as a chief operating officer, obviously uh, navigating this crisis. Um, it's not only shame on on, on all of us uh, here in California, but how is it that we can live to this ideal of equity if constantly uh, we're not holding ourselves and our uh, decision makers accountable uh, to making sure we're using a, a data driven approach? Um, and, and we've been preparing at a as a community health center, we've been preparing for this vaccine rollout. Uh, since we heard about it, uh, probably in, in you know sometime in the summer, um, only to be told that there's no certainty about how many vaccines we're going to get. Um, there's limitations on who can get the vaccine and where, um, and, and we can't move it around. Um, and, and in addition to that, uh, just having the, the technological challenges, all the integration we're being asked with very little investment. And, and I, I do think that that is part of the story here is that um, we're, we're obviously uh, this pandemic is is an accumulation of so many social injustices that have been done or that these communities have experienced. Um, and now it's it's really our turn to really live up to the ideal of equity and make sure this vaccine rollout uh, improves and it improves rapidly. Uh, I think many of our patients are tired of waiting. Um, and they're going, they're being asked to go back to work. Uh, and so we see all these conflicts and we're trying to um, reconcile them, but we do need help. Yes. So when you say lack of investment, the vaccine is free, but for you to distribute them and to make sure that you're vaccinating people, that's a cost to you. Are you saying that community health centers aren't getting the resources they need to do that part of it? Yeah, the, the resources, the certainty around how many vaccines we get, the resources uh, have not been clear. Um, in addition, when we speak of equity, um, it's really about going to where our patients are. And, and there's plenty of studies showing uh, place-based approaches. I mean, the, the vaccine should not, whether you get the vaccine or not, should not be determined by where you live, your zip code, or what occupation you have, or, or how much money you make. 
And I do think that um, that is what's happening is that we're, we're not getting enough support. And then we're asked to commit. Now we're at being asked to commit to high volumes of vaccines. Uh, and we have a short amount of time to distribute them, administer them. And equity, it doesn't work like that. We got to meet our community where, where they are mm-hmm. and we got to invest and make sure we get those vaccines out there. And it's going to take more. Um, and, and as a California, as a, one of the, you know, the, the, the fifth largest economy in the world, it, it would be a shame for us not to invest in making sure we get these vaccines out and stop the deaths, uh, the, the senseless deaths that we're seeing caused by this pandemic. Because what's wrong with right now, the state has prioritized hospitals and mass vaccination sites. What role do community clinics play that they don't? Well, we're located in some of the most underserved communities. I'll tell you, my patients walk here. They uh, some of them actually use walkers to get here. Um, and so part of it is how do we get them to to uh, these mass vaccine sites? Uh, we're doing what we can. We're trying to partner with folks to get them transportation. But many of them also share that they want to come to our site um, that they trust because of their doctor uh, or nurses. And also um, they want to make sure that if they have a reaction, they have somewhere to go, um, that they go somewhere where they receive the vaccine. Um, And those are the stories that we are hearing. We also hear a lot about patients, uh, our patients who have responsibilities, um, not only work, but maybe they are caretakers at home for somebody. Um, and so they have to arrange a, a whole uh, array of different supports in order to just get out of the home to get a vaccine. And so if it's further away, um, it, it adds a more challenge. And also that um, trusted relationship with the doctor that also helps at getting at any instances of vaccine hesitancy, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, what we, what we see quite a bit uh, in our patient population, uh, many of them, um, not only have a multitude of chronic conditions, and we're, again, seeing that the state is moving, moving faster, announcing that, you know, by March, March 15th, we'll, we'll have the opportunity to start really vaccinating um, not only our vulnerable patients, but also those with a multitude of chronic conditions that we serve. Um, but they haven't shown as much hesitancy. I think that they think we're hesitant. They, mm-hmm. they, they uh, look at us and they keep saying, I just got off the phone, actually, with the patient right now who basically said, when can I come in for my vaccine? I've been waiting uh, since the beginning of the year. Uh, and we continue to tell people that they have to wait their turn. Uh, but we're also hearing about another family member who just got COVID, ended up in the hospital in the ICU and passed away. And so we're, we're trying to do our best to, to prevent that from happening, knowing that there is a, a way to do that uh, through this vaccine. Well, we have listeners who are writing in. And again, you can... Email your comments at forum at kqed, kqed.org, post them online at Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or call us 866-733-6786. Jorge writes, the low percentage of Hispanics in California already vaccinated is based on simple demographics. I took my 97-year-old mother for her vaccination. The age has just been dropped to 65 and above. At 68 years old, I'm the only one in my family that qualifies. My wife is under 65 years old, and our four adult children are all under 35 year, years old. The vast majority of Hispanics are below 65 years old, so they are not eligible. It really is a young population, isn't it, Sonia Diaz? Yeah, and you know, that's precisely right. This is where data matters. And data about populations, especially the plurality population in the state of California, is critical. So Latinos' median age in the United States is 30. For Black Americans, it's age 34. For Asian Americans, age 37. 
For white Americans, it's 58. When we see who is dying of COVID-19, it is not our white Californians for a variety of reasons. Access to a healthcare provider, ability to stay home, shelter in place, physically distant. And so if we want to end unnecessary loss of life of Californians, we simply need to vaccinate our workers and we need to do that now. And they're young. Let me go to caller Dorothea in Berkeley. Hi, Dorothea. Hi, good morning. So my suggestion is that the state equip fans and have portable vaccination sites. They go to the workers. They don't have to prove they're working in the fields or anything. They just go right there where they're working or to Safeway or wherever it is and vaccinate people. So I was wondering how the state could invest in these vans that are equipped with the equipment that they need to keep the vaccine safe and uh, just go to the people rather than making them come to you. Dorothea, thanks. Barbara Fader-Ostrov, I know that there has been some mobile vaccination units. Is that what Dorothea is talking about? Is the state investing in that kind of thing? Uh, I think they are in terms of giving money to community-based organizations and eventually some clinics to do that type of work. So what I'm seeing is that there are those efforts emerging, but they tend to be at the local level uh, where people know how it would work on the ground rather than something imposed at the state level. Let me go to Mary in Sacramento. Hi, Mary. Hello. Yes, I called uh, uh, perhaps the uh, gentleman from that represents the clinics in Los, the Los Angeles area could respond. I did hear on NPR, and uh, I hope that I understood it correctly, that the Biden administration is going to be sending additional doses of vaccine directly to federally qualified health centers, which would be, I believe, the same as community clinics. And this is to be above and beyond the allocations that the states get. And if so, that should help the uh, lower income neighborhoods that those clinics serve. And I'm wondering if what I heard, if I heard it accurately, and if the gentleman from the clinics in L.A. would care to respond. Mary, thanks. Dr. Efrain Talamantes, does that sound right? Mary, that's correct. Uh, We were very pleased to hear last week that the Biden-Harris administration will be directly getting vaccines to us. We did hear from our the Human Resource uh, Service Administration, HRSA, um, that we'll be getting vaccines. And and that is a temporary um, way for us to get vaccines. I think we we continue to share this message that community health centers are really the backbone across the country. I mean, we serve not only rural uh, but also underserved communities. We, we're in some of the toughest uh, places in terms of um, making sure that we can get access to care to people that not only are uh, uninsured, but uh, may um, be underinsured or un- even undocumented. And so um, this this administration has not only been responsive, and, and it also speaks to, you know, again, yeah, we are, this is an, a Herculean task of getting these vaccines out and supply issue. Um, the prior administration left community health centers uh, out consistently. Um, and so we're really uh, pleased to have the Biden-Harris administration support community health centers. Uh, we uh, take care of millions of people here in California. Um, and again, we, we've built trust. I mean, Ultimed, uh, we've been here for 50 years. Um, people come to us uh, with a variety of different challenges, not just medical, social and we are always uh, looking to uh, make sure that um, 
we live our mission of eliminating those disparities that all of us in California worry about. And we know that these are the same individuals that oftentimes, again, are serving uh, uh, us in, in grocery stores or our caretakers. And so their health is as important um, because we, we come in contact with them. So that is, uh, again, a huge investment from uh, this administration that we welcome. The new uh, vaccine, mass vaccination site from the Biden administration that's now up and running at Cal State LA, though it is a mass vaccination site, do you think it will it will be more successful in terms of reaching hard hit Latino populations? Can I interject? Yes. And, and, oh, and Dr. Salamantas would love to hear your hot take. Um, I grew up very close to Cal State LA. It's in Northeast Los Angeles. This is an area that has been hard hit akin to Southeast Los Angeles and other parts of the state like the Fruitvale and the Oakland. Ultimately, citing a vaccination site in a frontline community is a start, but you need to ensure that they have access to vaccine appointments. And if that access point is all digital, communities of color, low-income communities, digitally underserved communities are gonna be left out because access to a vaccine on an online portal not only requires a lot of infrastructure, but it requires access to asymmetrical information. And so, so long as we start thinking about COVID as a war and starting to take care of our healthcare workforce so that we can ensure our communities have access to providers and have the trusted messengers that are assisting these members of our communities to obtain an appointment, that's how we're going to overcome this war. Dr. Talamandes, I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, there. it. Yeah, certainly. Uh, it's everything is important uh, in in this war in terms of both uh, centralized efforts and, and mass vac- vaccination sites. They serve a purpose, um, but the fact that uh, again early on we weren't included in a des- in a decentralized effort. Um, and again, we, you know, using using data to really look at, um, you know, these communities. I mean, when we were testing patients at Ultimed, um, our peak positivity rate was 40 percent. Um, and again, we're still compiling um, our, our data on, on the number of COVID deaths we've we've had at, at, at Ultimed. Uh, but we can tell you that uh, we our, our doctors were constantly on the phone with uh, emergency responders trying to um, ensure that those patients had access to, to hospitals. Um, and we want to, we, we can't let our guard down, um, both the, the, the mass sites serve a purpose, but also, uh, decentralized sites and, and a better partnership for us to work together to make sure that all these vaccines are used, um, that, that it gets to the hard hit areas. Um, and we're also in California. I think there's a lot of innovation, uh, that, uh, has proven very successful. I mean, uh, many of us, uh, again, have the ability to, to get services uh, into our home that previously maybe we weren't used to, uh, but because of this pandemic, it's become a necessity. Um, but we can't forget about those communities who don't have access to broadband. The digital divide is real. Uh, we see it uh, in the care we provide. We, we've tried offering video. We, we, we struggled through it. Um, it's very challenging for us to do video care. The majority of our appointments end up being telephone care, um, but we still see improvements in people's health. And, and that's part of um, our commitment to making sure that um, not only are there mass vaccine sites, but that some of the smaller providers in the communities also have access and, and can provide vaccines.
Well, Sandy writes, I'm over 50 with asthma and a school employee, yet I can't get a vaccine appointment anywhere in the Bay Area. My turn allows me to register multiple times. There seems to be no cross-check. The public is demanding schools to reopen, and we want to go back to work, but not without a vaccine. It's beyond frustrating. Barbara Federostrov, you were talking about how the online system privileges people with time, uh, people who have technology and reliable transportation if they want to be able to get a vaccine once they've been able to sign up for it online. Can you just talk very quickly about you, how the state is is addressing that, thinking about that, uh, and even just dealing with some of the glitches in the system? Yeah, it's it's been uh, pretty messy. Uh, it's also a really big job. So um, the state rather late in the game, did put up a statewide vaccine registration system. It's called MyTurn. It's myturn.ca.gov. And it is supposed to kind of unify a lot of the local registration systems, again, all online with, you know, a hotline here or there, uh, to uh, let people know both when it's their turn. So, you, I, for example, I registered to be notified when it's my turn specifically uh, as a person under 65. Uh, and... Um, it then went to uh, it, it then is supposed to bring in online all the county registration systems. Right now it's working for, I think, uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, and perhaps Alameda counties. Um, it's still a work in progress. Uh, and it has been kind of glitchy. Um, but it's it, again, it's evolving, it will get better. Uh, I think more of the point that I want to pick uh, pick up is that uh, once age was thrown into the mix earlier than expected, that really put a burden on all of the online registration systems. Mm. Well, we'll have more with Barbara Fader, Ostroff, Efrain Talamantes, and Sonia Diaz after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the challenges Latinos and other vulnerable Californians face in accessing vaccines and the status of the state's vaccine rollout with Barbara Fader-Ostrov, contributing writer at Cal Matters. She reports on medicine and health policy. Dr. Efrain Talamantes, Chief Operating Officer for Ultimate Health Services, a network of community health clinics in Los Angeles and Orange Counties. And Sonia Diaz, Founding Director of Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at UCLA. And you, our listeners, are with us. What are your questions about the vaccine rollout? What's been your experience trying to get a vaccine for you or your loved one? What are your thoughts on the disparities that are impacting the Latino community? Call us 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. John Jacobo is on the line with us, Health Director of the Latino Task Force for COVID-19 in San Francisco. Thanks for joining us, John Jacobo. It is an honor to be on. Good morning. And you have a testing and vaccine site in San Francisco's Mission District, which you've called a success. Can you talk about why 
you feel like what's happened there is a model for reaching specific hard-to-reach populations? Well, you know, I think this is one of the few uh, victories, if you will, that I think community can claim in a very dark period of time, I think, for our country. Um, for many that don't know, the, the San Francisco Mission District uh, has been a very vibrant Latino community um, dating back to the 50s, 60s and, and on, right? Uh, it has always been a newcomer community for the Irish, the Italian and, and Mexican-American, Salvadorians and Carawenses. But I think as we have all now seen through this pandemic, that uh, economic inequities have given us these disparities, these very painful disparities, um, and, and you can see them. It's kind of like the, you know, the iteration of racism in action, right? These inequities that have been caused uh, through different racial and class groups in, in the country and really in our city. Um, and our neighborhood, uh, the Mission District, has a wide swath of community leaders that have been fighting since the 60s and 70s, different uh, ordeals we've had to go through with gentrification, uh, disinvestment from the city. Uh, and what that has culminated to is this very unique leadership of multi-generational leaders, folks that have been fighting uh, for decades, some newer. And we came together to form the Latino Task Force. Our Latino Task Force uh, is rooted in community. We're all community organizers. We're not a 501c3. Um, you know, we're just folks that uh, pandemic, uh, gun violence, gentrification will be on the front lines fighting. And this group was able to partner with the University of California, San Francisco, to find very, very innovative ways to do things and achieve things. And one of those was discovering this idea, right? Not discovering, but really rolling out this idea of low barrier testing. And we're talking about disparities throughout the state. We're talking about uh, the lack of connection to information. Uh, you know, the city here for the city, county of San Francisco, and for, for large majority of the state, of course, a bunch of online portals, you know, very amazing to use, very pretty websites. But when you have a disconnected population of the society, which also happens to be the ones that are living in congregating living situations, right. the ones that are the essential workers keeping this running, um, you have them, uh, unfortunately, not be able to connect to these things. And so our model was really rooted in bringing the testing to the people, going door to door, registering folks with tablets, answering their questions about what it is a test is, what does it mean, what does a vaccine mean now that we've rolled out to this stage of it and bringing it to the neighborhood where they are so they can show up same day and get tested. And our rapid response model allows us for them to get a response for their, whether they're COVID positive or COVID negative within an hour. We're able to get them services that same night of food or cleaning supplies should they not have that, connect them to city programs like the Right to Recover, a policy that we help launch here. Um, and now across the street, we have vaccines. While I'm very happy for, for my neighborhood in the Mission District in San Francisco, I fear for the rest of the state because I know that this is not a reality in low-income neighborhoods, and it's something that the state uh, leadership has left to desire. Have, you, have they engaged you about how you have made your model such a success and so that they can replicate it in some ways in other parts of California? Not yet. I mean, we're, we're definitely, you know, working towards and always open to, to talking to the California Department of Public Health, to the governor's office. But this model, I just want to kind of highlight for listeners, on any given day, with our five little hundred tests that we do here at 24th and Mission, we are capturing anywhere between 16 to 45 percent of all of the city's positives. Because of our support program, we are able to ensure that 97 percent of the folks that test positive are supported and can stay home without having to leave their house. If you think of that in terms of, you know, who the essential workers are, 
it ensures that folks aren't going into grocery stores, that folks aren't going back to their works that they have to work at and thus spreading the virus. And so we're here and open, uh, you know, to talk and explore how this model can be uh, sent to the different low-income neighborhoods throughout California, which are more greatly impacted than others. Right, because it's the other part of all of this, the the part of it where you're ensuring that people do not get sick. It's the whole reason that you want people vaccinated as well. In terms of your vaccinations per day, what are you averaging at this point? Um, right now, we're we're doing about 120, but we're obviously angling to get as many as we can. We're working with the city to try to expand the amount of vaccination locations that we have um, throughout the city and county of San Francisco. Again, this idea of mass vac sites are great if you have access to online systems, if you have the ability to drive to a location uh, or bus to a location, um, and if you feel enough comfort to be able to get to these areas. But if you don't, you're you're missing a large segment of the population, which is arguably the most important one to mm-hmm. reach, uh, given the the pandemic um, and who it's impacting. Just so you don't require here. you don't require sorry, digital appointments. You don't require digital appointments. Then it's it's people who can walk we, up. Basically. Right. That's right. Right now we're having people walk up, which is also a simultaneously heartbreaking. To be clear, to have people that are in their 80s, 90s having to wait in line. Uh, because we helped develop a system ahead of what the city and county of San Francisco had um, to be able to take them same day. Uh, Of course, you know, uh, the city is doing what it can, the state is doing what it can, but we have to do more. John Jacobo, thank you. Really appreciate having you on. Thank you. John Jacobo, Health Director of Latino Task Force for COVID-19 in San Francisco. And let me go now to caller Donna in Santa Maria. Hi, Donna. Hi, um, thanks for asking my call. I actually just wanted to, so I'm out here in Santa Barbara County. Santa Barbara County is one of the least priority um, counties in California, um, but we are heavily, uh, here in Santa Maria, uh, a lot of our economy is propped up by the farm, um, the agricultural labor, including farm workers, indigenous farm workers. Um, this past year, uh, I worked with um, one of the community-based organizations here in Santa Maria, um, getting information to indigenous farm workers, including Mixteco speakers. Um, and uh, I think um, with the current discussion, I'm very much glad that a lot of people are recognizing the technology divide that exists here in Santa Barbara County. The only way you could have registered for um, uh, uh, testing was uh, either calling a call line or um, uh, registering online. And if you were a Spanish or Mixteco speaker, that was a basically impossible task, and they were not accepting walk-up call, walk-up um, availability at all in any of the appointment sites up until very recently. And I just wanted to reinforce that, that, yeah, there is a huge divide, but among farm workers here in Santa Barbara County, we're still not giving priority vaccination. Mm. Um, right now, currently in February, is a, a bit of the low time when farm workers do have time to set up appointments, go to clinics, get vaccinated, whatever they need, and medical care they need, they usually take the time in the winter to do that. Um, my parents are farm workers. They grow uh, strawberries all year round here in Santa, Santa Maria, um, and yet we're, we're still not given priority, um, even though we're the highest affected population here in Santa Barbara County. Santa Maria specifically is the highest impacted community, and we're still not given priority um, about vaccination, specifically farm workers and indigenous farm workers. 
Well, Donna, thank you for sharing that. And I definitely want to get our guests to react to it in just a moment. There's another caller that I want to bring in as well, and then I'll have them react to both comments. Let me go to Mimi in Riverside County. Hi, Mimi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am echoing the same sentiments the other caller has made here in Riverside, just for the listeners to catch up. Um, the Latinx community, uh, we are about 47% of the entire Riverside community, right? That's how much, that's our population. <laughs> um, and we are dying at 49%. Wow. And that's heartbreaking. And <laughs> no one's doing anything. No one's doing anything. Yesterday, the City Council of Riverside specifically brought up this fact. A councilwoman um, said, you know what? The Latinx population here, we are being hit hard. What can we do? The City of Riverside only has one vaccination site. That is at Lot 33 at the Riverside Convention Center. The spokesperson for that site said they only have 500 vaccine appointments a day. And when they were pushed to make comment, their response said their hands were tied. They could not do anything to change any aspect of that vaccine site. Whereas Mr. John Jacob, Jacobo just mentioned, if we have low-tech, no-tech um, interventions, if we have mobile units, even if we set aside 100 vaccines, that will make a huge difference in just the city of Riverside, let alone Riverside County. But no one wants to do anything. And once again, in this city council meeting, there was only one Latinx member on that um, on that board, and she was the only one that made a comment, and no one else said anything. So this is not just heartbreaking for listeners. It is heartbreaking for the members of the community because we want it, right? The, the the spokesperson said they cannot do anything about it. They need mm -hmm. to see a need. They need to see community input. Where yeah. can we give input other than NPR, right? Well, Mimi, th thank you for sharing that. And I can hear that it's also heartbreaking for you. And Barbara Feder Ostrov, we've been hearing over and over again from listeners, from our other guests, go to the people, go to where the people are. The state has now contracted with Blue Shield as this third-party provider. They're saying that Blue Shield's top priority is equity. Is any of this, what we're talking about, part of their plan to streamline and, and speed up vaccine distribution? Yeah, I think Blue Shield is definitely going to be held accountable for getting vaccine to the most marginalized communities, but it's going to have to be a partnership uh, effort with uh, what are called trusted messengers, uh, the community-based groups that have been working in their communities for a long time that are trusted, just like uh, Dr. Talamantes' clinic. Um, and Blue Shield is kind of the logistics manager for all of that, but the actual work on the ground has to be done at the community-based organization level, the clinic level, and the people who uh, can really be trusted and are, you know, the ones that are working with these populations on the ground. And my heart really goes out to the caller because, you know, we hear a lot of language at the state level and from state and local leaders basically saying equity is our North Star. And it's a lot of 
platitudes sometimes when you think about the very real consequences of the slow pace and the inequities in the vaccine rollout. I mean, we did some calculations uh, from new state data that is available, and we're seeing that while uh, the Latino community makes up about 40% of California's population, they have been uh, vaccinated at a rate of about 17% of all the people that have been vaccinated so far acknowledging that the data is still a little messy at this point. Well, let me go to caller Susan in Sebastopol. And before I do, let me just remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Hi, Susan. Join us. Hi. I would like to know what the data says. Is a person who is age 60 to 64 less likely to die if they contract COVID than a farm worker in their 20s to 30s? Um, Susan, thanks. I mean, are you getting at this question of what the state is weighing in terms of the goals of reducing death, uh, trying to try get to the people who are more likely to die from this virus and reducing the burden on our healthcare system, as well as keeping our society functioning by doing it on an age basis? Is that what you're asking, Susan? I am asking from the standpoint of having the fewest people die from COVID as possible and how they administer uh, the policies and how they administer the vaccines. Yeah. So I would like somebody to answer my question. Is a farm worker in their 20s to 30s more or less likely to die. He was age 60 to 64. Sonia Diaz is asking the state to reprioritize. I'd absolutely love to take that because what's really important, it's not just about age, it's about access to a provider. Almost all of these deaths associated with COVID-19 are unnecessary. No one should be dying. And what we're seeing is that at the point that that farm worker or that essential worker actually makes it to a bed in a hospital and is intubated, it's too late because those hospitals don't have the same access to care and especially the space to care for all of these workers who are facing COVID-19 because they are keeping America safe. To your question, We did a study at the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Initiative, study New York City and Los Angeles. We thought about the study when New York was the epicenter of the US's COVID-19 pandemic. That has since changed and Los Angeles has remained the foci. What we saw is that Angelinos between the ages of 18 and 40, young people, had the highest rate of infection. And so this underscores that workers are getting infected. Why? Because they're not staying home. They're leaving their house to go work. We know that population demographics show that Latino households have almost one more person in their house than non-white Hispanics. They also have more workers, more adult workers and more children. And so when we think about this age, it's not a, it is a false choice to say age over workers, age over young people. We should be focused on vaccinating the people who are dying and getting infected, the people who are medically underserved. We know that we don't have the vaccines that we need. 
we know from the Biden administration that vaccines will be coming, that allegedly come July, all Americans who want to get vaccinated can. But right now, we need to stop the catastrophic deaths occurring in our Latino communities and in our working households. And that factors in to one thing, which is getting them a vaccine, making sure they're vaccinated. And that is not going to happen on an app or with restrictions that have a disparate impact on their access. Well, Julia writes, I've been distraught trying to make people aware of the problems encountered by Latino or Latina Latino people during COVID. Nine people died in my extended family, ranging from ages 17 to 83. I fear for other families, including my students, whose families come from diverse income and labor sectors. It is distressing to continue to see to continue to see how inequality extends in all aspects of society for Blacks and Latinos. Barbara Fader Ostrov, I just want to ask you, looking ahead, we are hearing that more vaccines are coming. Do you have any sense of whether that process is improving? Yeah, I mean, vaccine supply is definitely improving. Uh, we have production ramping up for the two vaccines that are currently authorized by the FDA. And there is a new single dose vaccine from Johnson & Johnson that is expected to be authorized fairly soon. However, we are in a race against new, more infectious variants, uh, such as the UK variant and a couple of the have cropped up in California. Right. Um, and so basically the idea is to get as many people vaccinated as possible. As yes, possible. and the people who need it the most. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Barbara Fader, Osraf, Efrain Talamantes, and Sonia Diaz. Thanks to all of you for joining the conversation. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.